Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the VC Bruno podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I'm your host Digjay and today I have with me Rich Bhaseen, general partner at Rebright Partners, which is an early stage Japanese venture capital fund investing across multiple domains in India and Southeast Asia. In this episode, Bridge talks about his path leading up to venture capital, which includes working at early stage startups in India and US, being a founding member of a well-known accelerator in India, and now as a VC with Rebright Partners. In this episode, he also talks about how LPs can play a role in supporting and collaborating with startups, how early stage startups can leverage accelerators and micro VCs to build a strong foundation for themselves, and why is it critical for founders to choose the right investor for their startups. I had a great time chatting with Bridge and I hope you enjoy this conversation too. Let's jump into the episode and listen to what Bridge has to share. Hi Bridge, welcome to the VC Prana podcast. Glad to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me here, Tejan. So, Bridge, maybe we can start off with a brief background about yourself. Yeah, so let me give you a little bit of background. So, I uh, did my uh, engineering at the University of Minnesota, undergrad in computer science. Post that, I worked at an insurance company called Allianz. Didn't really like the whole corporate world and uh, decided to move to a very early stage startup. I was part of the founding team of a company called Pramata, uh, which was building business analytics software for large enterprises and was there for a number of years, helped grow the company from, you know, almost nothing to uh, tens of thousands of enterprise users. And um, they still quite active in the US. Came back to India, uh, tried to do a startup here, didn't work out after a year or two of trying. At that time is when I came across uh, GSF. GSF was an angel funding platform that was starting an accelerator program for early stage startups. And I found that concept quite interesting and really liked my conversation with Rajesh, who's the founder. Decided to join them as an entrepreneur in residence. And, um, you know, after the first uh, batch, uh, which was uh, quite successful, came on board as an operating partner and stayed with them for over three years. Since uh, then, um, so after leaving GSF, I joined uh, Rebright. I essentially helped them launch their fund in India. Been with them for now uh, five and a half years. You know, now I'm a partner at the fund and help them essentially with all their India activities and uh, you know managing the portfolio here. Great, awesome. So, could you talk a bit more about you know the thesis and the opportunity that you are focusing on at Rebright Partners? Yeah. So let me give you a little bit of an overview on Rebright. Rebright's a venture capital fund that is based in Singapore and Japan. We are essentially backed by mid to large Japanese corporations and family offices that are looking to invest in India's uh, digital growth story. And the idea for them is to participate and invest at the early stage, see how the companies evolve, see how certain sectors are evolving, and then make strategic investments themselves. So from that standpoint, we are the early stage emerging market fund for our LPs. What we also do is help our LPs make you know, strategic investments both in, inside our portfolio and even outside in sectors that they have keen interest in. Till now, I should say we've, we've done close to 15 investments across various sectors. But these are all companies that have strong tech-enabled products, right? So the sectors right. that we have been fairly active in are uh, healthcare, logistics and supply chain, mobility, digital media, 
and earlier on we we did a little bit of a consumer e-commerce and then more recently we've been doing more b2b e-commerce so these are some of the areas that we have invested in are also looking to invest in going forward and the idea is that how can we invest in products and startups that are essentially transforming the whole digital landscape by bringing in more efficiency more predictability and better pricing for products and services for consumers in india Right. You mentioned you have mid to large size Japanese corporations who are your LPs. How do you leverage your LPs to, you know, support your portfolio startups in India in terms of, you know, market access, strategic partnerships, etc. If you could go a level deeper to explain that. Yeah. And maybe an example of a, a couple of startups where you've been able to provide that kind of access. So, um, the idea from a strategic investment standpoint is to build a lasting relationship. So one thing that you have to keep in mind is that most Japanese corporations are really old. I mean, they, you know, these are typically companies that are 50, 100, 200 years old, right? And, and they take a very long term view when it comes to doing uh, strategic investments and partnership. And then because of that, they generally try to start slower and smaller, right? So what I mean by that is typically what would happen is we would do a seed stage investment. We'll typically leave the round, take a board seat. We'll help the company grow to the next stage. As series A and series B rounds for the companies happen and, and we can see predictable traction and customer growth, then our LPs come in and do follow on investment, you know, anywhere from as small as 500K to a couple of million dollars. And that time is when they start thinking about how would they build a strong collaborative relationship and figure out how they could jointly develop products or bring in expertise or the Indian company could form a joint venture with them for specific markets or for specific products. To give you a few examples, I think one of the most prominent examples we have is uh, in one of our portfolio companies, Medica Bazaar. One of our LPs is a trading company from Japan called CBC. And uh, they have been active in India for more than, uh, I think, a decade or two decades. And uh, once we made the investment in Medica Bazaar, they co-invested with us at Series A round. And they immediately started building a a strong collaborative relationship. Medica Bazaar and CBC have uh, joined, developed certain products specifically for the Indian market. Medica Bazaar develops uh, medical supplies, right? So they're a B2B commerce platform for medical supplies. And uh, CBC and Medica Bazaar launched a vertical for dental products, new innovative dental products in India. Similarly, we've seen Mitsui Sumitomo Insurance, uh, which is one of the largest insurance companies from Japan, has done large ticket strategic investment in DocSAP, which is a telemedicine platform in India. And again, the thesis is that telemedicine was a growing segment in India. And now it obviously during COVID times, it's almost uh, well established. But even a few years back, uh, it was very new. And even in developed markets like Japan, it was not you know approved from a regulatory standpoint. So for Mitsui Sumitomo, it was a way to understand how telemedicine will evolve. How would it work with insurance companies? And what would be the nature of uh, customer acceptance long term, right? And that's something that DocSAP and Sui Sumitomo have been able to work closely on. And I have a whole bunch of other examples as well. We we have a logistics company called Let's Transport uh, that raised uh, strategic money from Mitsubishi and uh, are now in discussions for, um, you know, further uh, strategic partnership as well. Right. Very interesting. So you're saying you have a fund backed by these corporations which are doing the seed investments. Yeah. Uh, but as and when they see more value and they think, you know, this can be extended further, they bring in their own separate money outside of the fund. Exactly. So, in fact, I would go as far as to say that, you know, almost in every of our portfolio companies follow on rounds of funding, 
30 to 40 percent of the capital coming in is through our LP network in Japan. So it's it's quite a significant backing that we're able to bring in as the company starts to grow further. Wow, that that's really interesting, and it's a unique model, I would say. Uh, you know, because looking from the outside, you know, Rebrite is an early stage investment fund that usually does uh, seed rounds but the kind of access and uh, strategic partnerships that you mentioned those are you know significant yeah so you know take an example of a docs app or medica bazaar i mean our seed rounds in the companies were in the range of uh, 500 to 700k but since then rewrite itself has put in a couple of million dollars each uh, in both of these companies and our LPs have put in at least $10 million in, in these companies, right? So the model is sort of a little bit inverted uh, from what you would see in regular VCs, where it starts smaller, but it balloons up significantly as the companies uh, grow further and show more market validation. Right, right. You mentioned, uh, you know, some of the investments that you're making is in logistics and healthcare. Both the sectors are seeing certain tailwinds uh, from the current COVID situation. And at the same time, you know, attracting a lot of competition as well as investor attention. Uh, so could you talk to us about, you know, some of the investments that you made and why do you think those companies stand a better chance to win versus the competition? So, you know, uh, I mean, you know every fund has its own thesis in, uh, in the, the thesis is obviously contextualized to specific uh, segments and specific markets. But by and large, I think one of the things that I could talk about is the way we have invested in certain aggregator businesses. We have worked with uh, companies, you know, that essentially create a full stack marketplace model or what we call an aggregator model where they, they try to bring in curated supply into a specific sector in a market. And then they build a very strong pipe on the demand side, create a demand supply sink, right? And, and this is something that we have seen across sectors, both in terms of consumer and in terms of B2B. So, you know, that is sort of one of the common themes that we have seen. And uh, the idea here uh, is that, you know, we, we try to take some of those learnings and cross-pollinate it across our portfolio. Right. Uh, so have you invested, you know, in any pre-revenue, pre-product startups as of now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we've done that in the past. So, for example, when very earlier on in our uh, investment cycle, we had invested in a company called Elanic, uh, which was a fashion commerce uh, marketplace, C2C, consumer to consumer fashion marketplace. And, you know, um, that was done with a thesis in mind that, you know, uh, consumer fashion would grow significantly. Right. The company was able to achieve decent scale in the earlier years, but then, you know, they had, they did struggle to raise significant follow-on capital. And then eventually last year they were acquired by ShareChat. Right. But that was one of our investments where we uh, did it pre-revenue and just based on um, PowerPoint presentation. So, I mean, what drives the investment decision in, in such startups? Uh, you know, how do you go about deciding that, okay, it's still pre-revenue, but I, I can still make a bet that, you know, this is going to go and scale and be an investable company? Typically, there are only two ways, you know, or I would say only two scenarios in which we would invest in a, a pre-revenue company. One is if we have built a significant thesis around it, right? So we, you know, it's it's a market that we either understand as partners because we've worked in there in the past, or it's a segment or a sector where uh, one of our LPs has a strong interest or ha have invested in a company right. in a different market and, and it has been successful. So one is going with the market or a product thesis and saying, okay, we want to replicate that in India, right? So that's one way uh, we would do that. The other is where if we, we come across an experienced founder, right? A serial entrepreneur has proven track record of building and scaling company in the past. 
and are now on their second or third leg uh, of their career and, and you know now uh, they have they're using the learnings from their previous experiences and, and there's a clear correlation on why their past experience will be a big value add to their new new project or new business right so that's another scenario where we would do a pre-revenue stage investment right makes sense i want to shift gears a bit now and you know talk about uh, your time at gsf it was one of the first accelerators probably in india at that time and you know the concept it, itself was very new in the country uh, so tell us one you know what led you to join gsf uh, and second you know how how were the early days uh, at the accelerator yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I never really actually had imagined that I would uh, go into uh, venture investing. And even joining GSF was not really a decision in that direction. I, I joined them the first few months I was an entrepreneur in residence, which was essentially a term that GSF used for people who are sort of in a transitory phase of their career, trying to figure out what they want to do next. And the idea was that, you know, can I help early stage founders in India in those uh, crucial first six months to a year? and avoid some of those pitfalls that founders fall into as they build their uh, first versions of the product, as they go to market, as they, they get their first customers uh, signed up. You know, the idea was that I would bring in my experience uh, of the previous five, six years from the US, uh, you know, building and scaling a company over there. Uh, and also my own personal experience of trying building and, and failing and in, uh, in scaling a company in India. So that's where it came from. and. I worked with a great set of founders in the those uh, first six months uh, with very interesting product ideas, and I really liked that experience. Uh, like uh, to, to you know work with multiple teams, brainstorm with them, you know, in terms of what their plan is, and figure out what are the issues in each market, um, see how we could uh, possibly solve them. So you know, it actually um, you know in in some in a weird way, it was actually even more rewarding for me than than running my own thing because you know I could explore so many different markets and and uh, work with so many different types of people um and and that's the reason why i stayed on and and you know continued to work with uh, gsf and and essentially got into venture investing so you know according to you what are the key problems that you know an accelerator can solve for startups uh, and whether you would recommend you know anyone starting up for the first time to go through an accelerator program I would absolutely recommend an accelerator. I think, you know, a lot of times people um, and founders underestimate how crucial decisions that are made in the, those first uh, six to 12 months can have uh, humongous downstream impacts, right? I think um, so a narrative has been built that, you know, founders need to just get up and running and, you know, build a prototype and get one or two customers and raise some money and they're off to the races, right? But, you know, the reality is much more nuanced, right? There, there are so many little decisions that you have to make. And one of the big things that I, I feel like where uh, founders need to be very careful on, uh, especially in the go-to-market strategy on two aspects. One is... Um, figuring out what is the right feature mix uh, for the product to go from MVP to V1, right? And, and there is a big difference between an MVP and a V1. Yep. And most companies and most founders think that it's just a straight line, right? Like, okay, you build uh, feature one, two, and three, and then now you just need to build, you know, the rest of it and, you know, it's done, right? And you, you're off, start getting paid by the customer. The reality more often than not is that, you know, you'll junk whole segments of your uh, product, uh, you know, or whole modules, you, you'll have to build a whole new thing. Some features would have to be completely redesigned, some new features have to build, you know, so it's it's like a convoluted mess uh, in initially. So that's on the product side. And the other side, uh, which is related to it, is your customer segment, right? Um, a lot of founders in the early phases don't pay so much attention on 
which real customer segment they want to target right and and everybody thinks i mean you know just this past friday saturday in fact i had a call with an old friend who's trying to turn his company around after uh, some sort of a pivot and um, you know again try to build like a whole uh, buffet of offerings with no path to how someone needs to eat that buffet right um, and and customers uh, tend to get lost in that journey and you have to be very careful in figuring out which customer and what vertical value proposition are you offering to them at one single time right so that it's easily understandable people can differentiate what your offering is and how it is better or cheaper or faster than somebody else and then they come in and make that decision because you know these decisions are never just a single person's decision right they they, they have to convince their team or their boss or someone you know or even for a consumer uh, a lot of times it, it is a decision made with their friends or family so you know it's important to keep that target customer segment in the initial uh, days smaller and this is more manageable and making sure that you actually try to win that customer segment Uh, along with that v1 of the product that you've built right and then product just doesn't mean the technology aspect of it product can also mean a lot of the operational aspects of you know getting something to market and these two things are feel as where uh, the input of accelerators or uh, right type of angel investors operating angel investors or uh, micro vcs like us really uh, come in and help yeah absolutely no i agree and you know you spoke about you know defining the right customer and defining how you want to go about building the products Uh, what are the other aspects you know probably from an operational uh, you know hiring or thinking about scaling how does an accelerator you know come into picture in those areas again it's the same thing right like uh, the first few hires are absolutely crucial and what an accelerator or micro vc does is to essentially help you bring clarity that you know given the amount of resources that you have and you know you can probably only hire a few people right away and you're trying to build an organizational culture behind it we try to understand where the founder and the founding team strength and policies lie right and it comes from a third party perspective and we try to work with founders who are self aware as well to be able to listen to such type of feedback and then give them a recommendation that look you know we see that these are the gaps in terms of where you really good at and where you need additional outside support and this is where we feel that you know you should bring on uh, someone uh, of this particular background which will balance you know a particular need in your company and if this sort of a discussion works well and you know there is a trust and clarity between founders and early investors then you know company actually builds a great culture and gets the right type of people and actually starts to scale uh, very quickly right makes sense you know i was doing some research uh, before our discussion today and i was going through some of the tweets that you had on twitter one of them says you know there are only two types of vcs in the world the all weather kind and the fair weather kind so if you don't mind you know could you elaborate on that and help us understand you know what are these two different types of vcs so look where that came from is a little bit of an observation that i've made in the market right it may be correct um, you know again um, these are the things that you kind of just observe and you may be uh, looking at things in the wrong way but you know one of the sense i've gotten is that i see a lot of early stage investors vcs angel investors accelerators who essentially don't really come in with a very strong conviction of their own when they're investing in a company right so and that typically translates to them never taking a lead position in any portfolio company or very few companies right and they'll always like come in as follow on investors or will always you know join party rounds with others 
will always have this condition that uh, you know i'll put in small money first and then i will participate further in your know, next round you know so essentially i'm starting to see there are people who are just essentially trying to play money ball with uh, venture investing right the way you would do in a public market right um and the challenge with that is i mean it's a great strategy as long as the the music is going right you know as long as the money keeps flowing you know you put in a small money the next round happens the next round happens you're sitting pretty on your equity you never really had to manage that company actively uh, a single day and you know you're just uh, took a mark up and and are just enjoying it problem is that the day the company is not doing well or if the market scenario suddenly changes the first port of call for all founders is their existing investors absolutely right? but if as an existing investor you built a strategy that was completely dependent on external capital helping your portfolio you never really had any reserves or you never really talked to your lps on how would be the long term viability of your portfolio you never really took a board seat or actively worked with a founder or built a relationship with them so that they can trust you and and you can trust them then it very quickly devolves and sometimes into bad situations and chaos right um the reason why i said that was i think founders sometimes don't even realize they think that all money is the same you know whether i take 100k from here or a 500k from there or a million dollars from there it doesn't really matter right but it's important for them to figure out what is really the strategy behind the money that is coming in right and and in how long term how vested is that money in their own success right so like a founder would complain that you know hey you know i mean I, this is all i have and this is all i put and you know i i don't have enough people backing me right but then you know it's also the way you looked at uh, creating your own cap table right and did you have people where the money that they have put in is substantial enough that if they lose that money it will affect them right then they will make sure that they can help you stay afloat during the bad times right enough skin in the game yeah they have enough skin in the game exactly right so that's where that came in from and you know i've also seen situations where there are certain investors will essentially wash their hands off if a company is not doing well as they say hey, this is just the job of the lead investor right uh, i i i was just a co-investor i just did follow on right uh, which i also have started to feel that maybe is a little bit disingenuous right uh, that you're essentially just coming in you know taking 20 30% of the round capital um, you know okay fine you're not taking a majority stake in a company or or a board seat but then essentially you're just completely passive capital there's no real value add that you provide neither are you working directly with the founder nor are you there in the worst of times right Correct. and all i'm saying is there may be need for this capital right i'm not saying that capital is bad you should take capital wherever it's available but for founders it's it's important to know that you know who they're working with and whether they will have those people will have their back when they need it right so bridge what are the signals that you know especially first time founders can look at to avoid such pitfalls and you know choose capital wisely the best is to do your due diligence on the vc just the way a vc does due diligence on the founders right so when we are investing in a company we do due diligence from multiple ways right it's almost a 360 degree review we we obviously look at the market we look at the product we look at customer feedback we look at what the founders have done till that stage in terms of you know their own value that they brought to the company then we start looking into the founders background right so where did they work before what was the the feedback of their uh, previous employers or their co-workers talk to other investors in the market who who may have worked with the founders in the past so you know we we do that level of diligence and i'm saying that 
you know, generally this level of DD builds up, right? So we do a basic in the initial stages, then a little bit more in term sheet, then, you know, of course, more comprehensive before we sign transfer the money. Uh, the same way, I think uh, founders should do the same thing, right? They, they should do at least some basic diligence and, and uh, look up. A lot of this can be even just done on secondary research online, right? Just look up their portfolio pages, right? And see which companies are in portfolio. Uh, look up how much ownership stake that they had in their portfolio companies. See whether they participated in their pro rata in the follow on rounds for, for the companies or they immediately exit in the next round or the round after that you know just look for feedback if and the best feedback is to uh, talk to one of the founders in that portfolio if you connect to them and and, and get a sense of uh, what, what their experience has been with that vc and, and you know a lot of cases it could be that the founders just comes back and say i you know i mean i just took their money i don't really talk to them much right so uh all i'm saying is there's no right or wrong but just go with their eyes open no absolutely you, you're absolutely right and you make some very important points I mean, you need to know exactly how your investors can help you, you know, beyond capital, uh, especially in times uh, of crisis or in times where you need their support. Uh, moving things along, uh, Bridge, you know, from your background of your initial days in US and working with Rebrite, which also focuses on uh, other Southeast Asia markets. Tell us, you know, from that perspective and that uh, vantage point that you have, how is, you know, the Indian startup ecosystem maturing? I think some of the things that we now are starting to get to some of the things I just talked about, right? We're seeing serial entrepreneurs coming in the picture. We're seeing money being recycled back into the ecosystem through uh, founders and VCs who've enjoyed uh, large exits. We're starting to see models that are scaling globally in a very significant manner. We are also starting to see founders who are executing very large visions. Um, and th this last point is the one which actually defines a maturing ecosystem and uh, something that, you know, we, we actually just had a discussion internally a week or two back. In the early years, uh, it was hard to get early stage first time founders who had grand visions and fire in them to execute it and think about how they could create lasting change in their respective markets and it's taken a while you know it's still not every founder that you come across is able to create a large canvas and clearly define the path to winning that right it's it's either a very broad vision which is very vague or it's a very myopic vision which is you know narrowly executed right so i think that is something that i really look forward to in the next coming decade as we start to mature as an ecosystem Right. Awesome. So, Bridge, with that, I want to move to our final segment, which is the rapid fire round. Hope to get your, you know, honest opinion on some of the questions that I'll, I'll fire away. Of course. Okay. So, one thing that you'd like to change about the uh, Indian startup ecosystem to improve it for the better. I think, you know, just people to be a little more forthcoming and honest, right? Uh, what, what I see in the US is uh, people are, are very straightforward. You know, they will give straight feedback and share their thoughts uh, with each other candidly. There is uh, a sense of a larger worldview, not just in terms of one particular market or one particular product that they're executing, but also how the macro environment uh, affects them, their company, their, their employees, their country, and uh, founders and VCs are very vocal about it. I think this is probably one of the aspects you know, I would love to see more of in our market. Uh, a myth about venture capital? That capital always wins. 
you know there are few <laughs> stories uh, in the market where you know companies have raised uh, lots and lots of money and you know are almost like written as if that they have already won and exited and you know have become successful but i've seen many stories both internally within our portfolio and even outside where uh, you know just because you've raised a large series a or series b or even in sometimes you know we've seen publicly even later stage round doesn't mean that you have become quote and quote successful right success is defined when you when you've created a platform which is self uh, standing right uh, it has strong foundations that uh, can last for a very long period of time and and create lasting value for all shareholders employees customers right and much harder to build than it seems right hats off to people who've done it but you know sometimes we just think that uh, fundraising is that metric it's really not right yeah and you know th- my next question was how do you define success uh, you know on a personal level i think for, for me uh, at a personal level what what gives me meaning to my line of work and what i do is when i see people evolve right when i see early stage founders uh, you know who i've been working with for 5 years 10 years now in some cases who have evolved as individuals who grown so much you know i mean we we're just in the middle of a transaction where we're investing second time into a founder who i first met 8 years back who just out of college and and to watch him you know now start a second company and uh, already uh, scaled his previous company and across uh, millions of users and uh, tens of millions of revenue and customers i think uh, it it's pretty amazing to see that evolution uh, and also to see how you know these companies have been able to add value to society and how they've changed the lives of customers and employees right i think that's really what i would say defines the success and gives meaning well beautifully put one last question bridge uh, you know people from the startup ecosystem that you look up to and why there are lots and lots of examples uh, you know the kind of entrepreneurs that i really look up to you know sachin bansal is a great guy you know just to see him build flipkart come out and then start his new fintech thing and go with a, such a broad canvas and try to execute in a methodical manner that's pretty amazing you know in terms of venture investors um i i like the a16z guys anderson horowitz guys in yeah. in, in the us I like what uh, lightbox and sid um, those guys do um you know i've seen them uh, do some very interesting bets and and help uh, scale their companies uh, one of the gsf portfolio companies uh, you know went on their uh, portfolio as well you know so what i really like are people who are very authentic and are grounded and trying to build large sort of platforms and businesses which may be quite contrarian when when they initially start Uh, may not be the flavor of season and then you know you see them slowly go, go about doing it quietly in the background and uh, you know 5 years 10 years later they they completely changed the industries that they work in i think those are the types of people i admire great great so bridge any last thoughts for both current as well as aspiring founders who are listening to this uh, yeah i i would say especially to the founders the the times that we live in right now are uh, quite volatile and chaotic and and it may seem as the worst time to kind of be a founder or to start start up uh, but i i would say this is the exact time to do that and and you know um, there's a lot of opportunity the more behavioral change around you more opportunity that you can build something uh, interesting and long lasting you know so uh, just encourage them to keep their spirits up and keep building and keep executing Bridge this has been a really insightful experience listening to you today thanks for your time to be on the show and hopefully we'll have you back soon again thanks so much for having me these are interesting questions to you know always uh, contemplate
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the VC Bruno podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let our guests know about it. Share your thoughts on social media and let them know what were your key takeaways. We would truly appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a review on Apple iTunes. This will help others discover the podcast. To get insights and to learn more about startups and venture capital, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We will love to hear from you there. You can find all episodes together on our website, thevcpreneur.com. We will be back again next week with another VC Preneur that is making a dent in the venture universe. Until then, take care and keep shining.